Are you in perimenopause or menopause and have questions? My co-host Andrea Donsky has a podcast called Menopause Reimagined, where she answers your questions about this phase of life. So stay tuned at the end where I will share five minutes of her amazing podcast and there will be a link in the show notes where you can go and listen to the whole episode. Andrea is brilliant and she has worked so hard and knows her stuff. So be sure to check out Menopause Reimagined after this episode of Health Power. Thanks. I was so excited when I got the fantastic book, Put Your Feelings Here, a creative DBT journal for teens with intense emotions. If you listen to the show, you know I have one. I'm sure many of you out there experience this as well. So I'm thrilled to have the wonderful Lisa M. Schwab, LCSW. Hi, Lisa. Hi, Lisa. Thank you for having me today. Oh, it's so nice to have you on. I would like to first start out by people are probably thinking, wait, did she say DBT or CBT? Because there's cognitive behavioral therapy. But this is something called DBT. Why don't you start there and tell us about that? Okay. uh, DBT stands for dialectical behavioral therapy. And it is a really well-reputed well-grounded based therapy that was started by a psychologist named Marsha Linehan in the 1980s. And um, she saw a need for uh, something that would go a little bit beyond CBT, which is cognitive behavioral therapy, or using our thoughts to help us change behaviors and feelings. So she took a base of cognitive therapy and then added on to that and really expanded that. And it has um, just grown and flourished and has a lot of evidence-based statistics that show us that DBT is really effectual, especially with emotional regulation. Um, there's, there's four main areas that DBT concentrates on. One is distress tolerance. One is interpersonal effectiveness, one is mindfulness, and the other is emotional regulation. So that's why we chose DBT for a book, which is supposed to help teens with emotional regulation. Um, So a lot of just a, a huge, comprehensive, vast amount of practical techniques to help people of any age manage their emotions. Yeah. I mean, when I read through the book and I was looking at all the different prompts and all the wonderful exercises, I thought, geez, I could use this too. I really love how you use humor early in the book. I think that's something that is so intelligent because it catches, you know, like my daughter immediately was like, oh, this is really funny. It says, uh, DBT is a subtitle of the book, but what does it mean? Vote for your choice. A, dream big today, a professional system of wish fulfillment. B, do be true, a soon to be released country Western hit. C, dialectical behavioral therapy, a tried and true research method, uh, excuse me, research-based method for managing big emotions. The other thing you talk about before we jump into some of these great uh, prompts and exercises is you talk about the emotional, logical, and wise minds. Tell us a little bit about that, Lisa. Right. Okay. The, this is a DBT concept. Um developed specifically in DBT. And these three different minds are like three different perspectives. So we all have these within us. Um, We just don't necessarily identify them that way. But so emotional mind is the part of us that just runs on feeling and emotion. And it just wants to say, oh my gosh, I'm upset. 
I have to do this or, you know, I'm overwhelmed and everything is terrible. <laughs> and then we have logical mind, which is pretty much the opposite. It, it just ignores feelings and emotions and it says it uses total logic. So, well, you don't, you shouldn't feel that way because everything is the way it's supposed to be. Um, you know, let's just look at the facts, ma'am, that kind of thing. So in reality, um, neither of those are completely healthy because we do need logic to help us reason things, but we also can't ignore we're emotional beings. We're human beings. We're not robots. So there's a place and a reason for our emotions in our lives, and we need to listen to them because they, they tell us a lot about ourselves. So wise mind is the part of our the perspective that walks the middle ground and that considers both emotion and logic and comes to a the most mature healthy usually the most mature healthy conclusion as to how to proceed how to respond that makes sense. Oh, it totally does. Yeah. I mean, I live with somebody who is 100% in their emotional mind and it's exhausting. It's exhausting for the person who's there and it's exhausting for the people around them too. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's funny you say that because I, I have two books. My first one is an anthology called Easy to Love but Hard to Live With. And it's about people who have brain-based invisible, uh, we call, I call them differences rather than disorders, whether it be ADHD, autism, uh, spectrum, mental health issues. One of the things about the book that I love is that it has the people who have the issues themselves and their challenges, but then it also has the people who love them. All right, I'm jumping into this book. My daughter's been using it a lot. It is helping. It's so important. I mean, you have these great things. What are you feeling now? And there's a, you know, you have plenty of room to write sadness, joy, anger, love, envy, surprise, let it all out all over these pages. A lot of times stuff just needs to be written down. Talk to us about the importance of journaling because I've been told that, you know, it, it really helps to get it out of you when you're writing it down. It does. Absolutely. I, my, the first book I ever wrote actually was on journaling. Um, it's called Write, Writing It Out, Self-Awareness and Self-Help Through Journaling. And I came to write that book because one day I was, after graduate school, I was, I was looking at all my vast volumes of journals <laughs> that I had written over the years and and also poetry. And I looked at them and I thought, wow, this writing really helped me through so many difficult times in my life. Thought, well, if, if that could help me, it could help other people too. And and then I wrote the book and developed a whole bunch of journaling workshops from that and, and professional trainings on how to use journaling and therapy, which are still available. So I'm a big proponent of journaling, both personally and professionally. And a few of the reasons that journaling is really helpful, and it's all also there's been research done on this. Um, I think one of the one of the most important things is that it gives expression to what's inside of us. So we need a place to go with our emotions, and just like you know, the "Put Your Feelings Here" book offers a place. But when sometimes we think that if I ignore my feelings or if I just push them down or push them aside, they'll go away. And they don't. They'll end up coming out sideways or backwards or really in a bad, disruptive, inappropriate way. So we need to express our feelings. And journaling can feel like a safer place to do that than talking sometimes. Sometimes people don't want to say things out loud or they don't want to use psychotherapy, which is talking therapy, because they're not comfortable with that. So journaling gives us a safe 
an immediate and private place to go with our feelings. Um, Secondly, one of the most important things too is that why writing helps is that it takes something abstract, which is our emotion that is kind of maybe feels like it's swirling around inside of us. Um, It might feel that it's overwhelming. It's bigger than us. When we're just holding it inside of us, it can, it can just feel devastating and like, oh my gosh, I'm afraid of this thing. It's so big. When we express that feeling on paper, we're making that abstract entity concrete. We're, we're putting it into a physical form, literally. We're putting it into words on a piece of paper with little letters and black and white or whatever color we're using to write or type because some people journal at a keyboard. Um, but words, the printed words are very familiar to us. It's something we're used to to seeing. And that big abstract feeling now becomes something that we can look at and is outside of us and is literally smaller than us because we can look at it. And we can not only feel empowered by that and just relieved by that, we can also then manipulate what we've put on the page. You know, we can write and then we can close the book and walk away. Or we can type um, on the computer and then we can, or the phone, and we can delete it and walk away. Or as some of the prompts in the Put Your Feelings Here book allow us to do is write and then destroy what we've written if we want to. You know, there's one page that says make confetti out of these things you wrote down. Um, So so journaling um, becomes a safe and appropriate place to go with overwhelming feelings. It helps us reground and recenter. Um, it also helps us organize our thoughts and feelings. So that helps us feel more in control also. Um, we we kind of stop the swirl and put things into order. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting uh, when you mentioned to put things into order. I feel like with this journal, what's so great about it is with the prompts, if you need some sort of, you know, some place to start. For example, what do you need someone to understand about you right now? And then on the opposite page, it says, share these thoughts with someone you trust or list the people you can call or text right now to tell how you're feeling. Pick one and do it. You know, there, there, I like things where there's action. Yes. And that's a good point because um, as effective as journaling is for a lot of people um, who aren't natural writers, um, they might open up a journal, a blank journal, or look at a blank screen on the computer or just see a blank piece of paper and feel intimidated and like, well, I don't know how to write or what do I write or where do I start? And they can be helped with that. But a guided journal, as put your feelings here, um, offers places to start. And, and also not just offers places, but in this case, the places and the prompts are chosen specifically um, because they're there's a there's a design behind that. Well, um, we're going to help you distract yourself. We're going to help you breathe. We're going to help you identify the thoughts that are causing your intense emotion. So there's a lot of reasons behind all those kind of fun and creative prompts that are in there. They're not just fun and creative. They're also um, designed specifically in the DBT principles to get something out that needs to be. Once you have had a wonderful dog, a life without one is a life diminished. 
That's a quote by author Dean Coots, and I couldn't agree more. I want my wonderful dogs to live as long as possible, and what they eat plays a huge role in their health and longevity. Kibble is full of seed oils that wreak havoc on our dog's health. They damage their microbiome, which affects digestion, oral health, their skin and coat, and more. And that's why I feed my dog Benji Yumwoof. Their air-dried food is GMO-free and has an inflammation-reducing recipe with omega-3 and coconut oil. It's all the benefits of fresh food without the fridge, carbs, fillers, seed oils, and other inflammatory ingredients you see in other brands. Yum Woof obsessively crafted a healthy, low-carb food with humanely raised USDA meat, eggs, and other non-GMO superfoods that my dog loves. Try the number one air-dried dog food for gut health for 50% off a trial of Yum Woof. That's 50% off a trial of Yum Woof. Go to www.yumwoof.com. That's www.yumwoof.com. You and your dog will be so glad you did. Well, you know, I mentioned in the beginning, this book is for everyone. I mean, I think any adult uh, would relate to this. Write the headlines for the catastrophe you're imagining will happen. I mean, so many of us do that. Uh, then write the story of what's more likely to happen. I mean, that catastrophizing is kind of a big thing, unfortunately. Yes, it is. And that, again, that's looking at our thoughts. It's examining our thoughts. And when we're asked to put those on paper, we actually take the time to, to pay attention to them. You know, sometimes we're just walking around with this, this anxiety or this worry. And when we actually sit down and examine our thoughts, like, well, well what, are, what am I thinking is going to happen? Well, I'm thinking that, you know, the, the worst. And, well, and what are, what are actually the odds of that happening? What are the chances that that worst thing will happen? Um, so when we're, sometimes we need guidance. We can't always figure that out in our heads by ourselves. You know, that's what therapists are for and guided journals are for, et cetera. Um, and that helps us put things in perspective. Yeah, totally. I love this uh, focus shift. Are you one of the rare people who can hum while holding your nose? Let me see. Oh my God, I never tried that before. I guess I'm a no. Uh, draw the number six while making clockwise circles with your leg. I probably, I'm not very coordinated. Touch your tongue to your nose. No. Tickle yourself. Hee <laughs> hee. Uh, talk while inhaling through your nose. Hello. Oh my God, I'm bad at all these. I can't wiggle my ears. Put your fist in your mouth. I can, I don't think I, I maybe be able to raise only one out eyebrow or, and then you have room for people to write. That's so cute. Cause again, it kind of gets you out of your like, ah, there's, you know, people who've done research on that. I didn't just make it up. Um, but the, the reasoning behind that is distraction. And that might seem kind of like common sense. We'll take your mind off of whatever you're worried about, but sometimes it's hard to do that. And if we can identify that, Oh yeah, you know, say I do this prompt and I'm paying attention to something that makes me laugh or something that's completely different from what I'm upset about. I learn first of all in the moment that I can calm down and I learn later on down the road when something else bothers me, you know, if I stop thinking about this right now and go put my mind on X, Y or Z or something that makes me happy, I can I can regulate my emotions now and help myself. So distraction is actually a DBT concept. Oh, okay. I like that. I also like how you want to look at 
what's going on with your emotions, for example, for example, for example, how loud is your emotion? What thoughts put it at each level? Fire alarm, motorcycle, drums. And I like how each word gets smaller. Barking dog, crunching chips, friend's voice, lullaby, whisper, drifting feathers, take a breath and turn down your volume. Yeah. Yeah. That, that again is to help you identify your thoughts and the, the artists, um, behind the book, which are not me, they're Amy Shoup and Michelle Waters, who are two of the artists at New Harbinger, the publisher, they did a wonderful job of bringing to life the concepts that I wrote and the words that I wrote, because it, it really is a part of the prompt and it really helps, um, just illustrate what I'm trying to say with the words. And then it also makes it more engaging and fun to look at. Now, is are there people who actually go to DBT therapy? Like people go to CBT yes. therapy? Talk to us about that because that sounds really interesting. Yes, yes. Um, I've learned a lot about DBT in the past few years, um, partly because I had a personal acquaintance who was going through a formal DBT program and also for doing research for this book. And I, I use a lot of the skills in my psychotherapy practice. Um, so the dialectical behavioral therapy, it's called dialectical. Dialectical kind of means two opposites, integrating two opposites at the same time. So the two opposites in DBT are acceptance and change. So going through DBT therapy helps us identify times and and learn how to accept things that we can't change and work on practicing that and all of the skills that help us do that. And then also to change things that we can and skills that can help us do that. So it sounds a little bit like the um, the serenity prayer. I grant me the serenity, accept the things I can't change and the courage to change the things I can. And actually that concept is like, emotional health in a nutshell is, can I do that? Can I accept what I can't change, change, have the courage to change what I can and the wisdom to know the difference, really? Um, so you're not beating your head against a wall. Um, but a formal DBT program in cases where the treatment center or the therapists themselves have gone through a specific training program um, is is really effective. There's also a lot of us out there. I'm not formally trained um, and certified in DBT, but I use a lot of the concepts as most therapists do. But there are different um, therapy uh, groups that that actually go through the specific formal program. So that program has four main parts to it. One is you're required to go to individual therapy once a week. The second is you're required to go to a skills class once a week that's separate from your therapy. And when you go to the skills class, you'll learn one of the emotional regulation or the distress tolerance skills. And then with your therapist in your individual session, you will learn, you'll talk about how did I use this this week? How could have I could I have used this? Um, so you really apply what you've learned. And then um, the third facet of the of the formal program is that there's a twenty four seven hotline that you can call if you're stuck, if you're overwhelmed, if you're in a crisis, and there will be a therapist there to help you through that. And then um, the fourth facet is that you have actually a team helping you because all of the therapists in the facility or whatever treatment center you're going to 
they're all working together and they're consulting to help each client. So um, the person I knew who went through the therapy, they had to commit to a year and some, some programs it's six months, some programs it's a year, but it was, it was very effective. You know, everybody is different, but it does, it is effective and is shown to get really good results. Well, is there a certain profile, the type of person who would do this? Yeah, I, I, DBT originally, and I'm pretty sure of this, but not 100%, I'm 90% sure, was originally designed for people with borderline personality disorder. Okay. But then um, as time went on and different people used it, found out that, wow, it can help it can help anybody, actually. Um, some of the skills, I mean, I think it, we'd all help by going through this, be helped by going through this program. Um, they're, they're life skills. They're practical life skills. And we can all use emotional regulation help or distress tolerance. What do I do in a crisis? Um, so I think it's generalized more and more. And you know, so many people, um, so many therapists or professionals learn the skills to help their clients with all different things, um, anxiety, depression, um, attention, uh, you know, different kinds of things that we come, because we all have emotions. And for all of us, whether we're teenagers or at any age, sometimes they feel overwhelming and we can all be helped by that. Oh, wow. You know, one of my favorite shows is Crazy Ex-Girlfriend and she had borderline personality disorder. It, did you watch the show? Because they did an excellent job. I'm not familiar with it, but it sounds good. Uh, well, now I just gave a big thing away because you don't know. You know there's something going on with her mental health. But they did a really good job. Uh, I mean, it's remarkable. I've spoken to several different people in the industry, people, not the film industry, in the mental health industry, people with mental illness themselves. And the many I've spoken to with different mental health issues, mental illness, have all said that that show is is one of the best in terms of the way they portrayed it. One of the things that's been encouraging me lately, I'm just learning more about this, um, but there is, I don't know if you're familiar with the SEL programs or the social emotional learning programs, that this is a nationwide movement to get social emotional learning into schools. And um, it varies, yeah, it varies state by state, but it is a national program. And there's a there's an acronym that uh, the Yale Center for Emotional Intelligence has has starting to use. And that is RULER, R-U-L-E-R. And that is their goal is that we are going to be able to teach the ability to R, recognize, U, understand, L, label, E, express, and R, regulate emotions. And, and I, I have a cousin actually who's working in the school system now, and he's teaching me more and more about um, how in Illinois, where I am, there's new regulations as far as how much social emotional learning every school is supposed to have each day. And so the schools, while their main goal, of course, is academic learning, this is the perfect place where every child goes, where we can also start helping them with emotional learning. Because if we don't have emotional stability and emotional health. It doesn't matter if we're the valedictorian, you know, or have all the AP honor classes. Um, we need to be emotionally stable and healthy. And I, and I think um, 
we need to really recognize the importance of mental health in our in our culture, especially today. Yeah, I think so too. You know, I, I'm so enjoying this journal. I you you your publisher was kind enough to send me one as well. <laughs> so my daughter and I Oh great. Yeah, my daughter and I both great. have one. And I, I encourage everyone to go and get it. Put your feelings here. Lisa M Lisa, how do you say your last name? I feel like I didn't say it right earlier. That's okay. It's Shab. It rhymes with Bob. Oh, okay. So Lisa M. Shab, LCSW, yeah. a creative DBT journal for teens with intense emotions. And before I let you go, Lisa, I'd love to know how you even got into the field. Like, when did you know you wanted to uh, be an LCSW? And for people who don't know what that is, what is that? It, that just stands for licensed clinical social worker. So my graduate degree is in clinical social work and I'm licensed, Yay! which is good. <laughs> I need to be. Um, that's a good question. And I could answer that in like three days because there's a lot behind it. But but basically, basically, um, I grew up uh, in a family with wonderful, loving parents, but who are also human and imperfect. And so I, I didn't learn a lot of coping skills myself, a lot of healthy coping skills. Um, and so I eventually went into my own therapy uh, because I had some issues. And, and I, at the same time I was in my own therapy, I was in graduate school and I was working as a preschool teacher. And I was working with a child in my class who had some behavioral problems. And I was working with the school psychologist and the parents. And I thought, wow, you know, this is interesting. Um, and I actually didn't agree with what the psychologist was doing. <laughs> and, I, and I thought, well, what about, he was, he was kind of just looking at it as a, you know, what's wrong in the kid's brain. And I said, well, what about the fact that the kid's parents are getting divorced right now? I think that might be affecting his behavior, you know? So anyway, I became interested in social work and and realized that that was something I wanted to do. Um, it being from a family that, um, you know, had emotional health struggles um, ourselves, and then seeing how much it could help other people. Um, and I just, I really love my work. I've been very fortunate. Oh, that's fantastic. Where do you practice? Well, my office is in Libertyville, Illinois. It's a north suburb of Chicago. Oh, that's really awesome. Now, tell us all the ways we can find you and your fantastic book, Put Your Feelings Here. The website is Lisa M. Shab Books, which is actually undergoing some changes right now. It's so it might be a little hard to read, but it's getting better. And um, my last name is Shab, S as in Sam, C-H-A-B as in boy. And the book you can find on Amazon or Goodreads or just Google the title and um, it's for sale all over the place. So, Lisa, I'm so glad you came on. I mean, this is such good advice. We all need to take better care of our emotional health. I'm Andrea Donsky, founder of Morphis, powered by Naturally Savvy. And today we're going to be talking about brain health. When we get into perimenopause and menopause, the subject of memory and cognition comes up a lot. So I'm very excited to have with me today, Dr. Bryce Wild. I am so excited. I'm going to read your bio really quickly. Bryce Wild is a leading health expert and clinician specializing in integrative and functional medicine, blending the latest in science and technology with traditional and ancient remedies. Welcome to Morphus. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Great idea, great concept. Love it. Love Naturally Savvy. I love the work that you do, and it's my pleasure. It's my honor to be on the show. Thank you, Bryce. All right, let's jump into it. Let's talk about brain health. I want to understand as we get older, so we're talking to women who are in their you know, 40s and, and onwards, and as we get older, our estrogen levels decrease. How does that play a role and affect our brain health? 
It's a huge role. In fact, actually, it is all in your head. We're going to get to that. <laughs> Literally and figuratively speaking, menopause is a new concept that a lot of us are just becoming familiar with in the world of functional medicine, but it really does in so many ways start uh, in your head. Um, and it has a lot to do with the molecule serotonin, a feel-good molecule that a lot of us have come to uh, be uh, aware of as it pertains to uh, prescription medication and antidepressants, which by the way, as uh, a lot of your listeners and viewers will know, um, pertains in so many ways to the perimenopause and menopausal uh, experience. So for so long, we have thought estrogen is uh, pretty much exclusive to the periphery, the ovaries, the uh, the, the uh, fertility aspect of estrogen, right? That powerful hormone that ultimately divides cells and, and grows cells and is responsible for ovulation and, uh, and a whole host of other biological uh, happenings as it pertains to uh, your cycle. But so much of it is underappreciated as it relates to how it functions in the brain. Um, for some time now, I've been focused on brain health. I mean, a lot of us know what we're doing to lower perhaps our cholesterol, totally different story. It's an, an, an old, old concept to be worried about cholesterol, but I mentioned it because most of us are simply familiar with our numbers. We know what our blood pressure is. We know what our weight approximately is on the scale. But if I were to ask your viewers if they knew what their hippocampal volume was <laughs> or how their cerebral cortex was functioning that day, I bet yeah. you not one of them would know. I don't think um, I don't even know that. So explain what that even is. <laughs> well, well, you know, so hippocampal volume is something you could get done on an MRI. You can go under a non-invasive MRI and have the volume of the memory center of your brain, very relevant to menopause, by the way, as you earlier mentioned, mm -hmm. memory is a big issue uh, for perimenopause and menopausal uh, symptoms suffer. So, but, but, but back to the idea that we don't know enough about our brain and how it's functioning, even though you can do these things to get baseline, you know, memory function tests, um, we don't do them. And yet the brain is the most important organ in our body. It baffles me. I went ahead and I, and I wrote a whole book about this. Uh, you know, where we desire, by the way, Andrea, as you know, to live longer. I mean, that's well established. Uh, we also desire to live longer well. We call this lifespan. Uh, but I went ahead and I sort of one-upped on that. And I, I wrote a book called Brain Spanners. And this is all about living your best life as long as possible, optimal cognitive function. So optimal cognitive faculties excellent memory, astute concentration, focus, attention, alertness, good sleep, you name it, you're going to have it lifelong. And this pertains, let's go full circle back to perimenopause and menopause. And we, we know this is a rite of passage. Menopause is not a disease. It's simply your hormones re-equilibrated, which has something to do with genetics as well, by the way, but park that thought for a moment. Uh, and let's go back to this idea of so much of this starting in the brain. Um, this neurochemistry, Serotonin, I've already alluded to, but there's others. Noradrenaline and adrenaline. This is the fight or flight uh, relationship. These chemicals that are responsible for stress. And this all, by the way, ties into uh, your adrenal glands. I'm going to throw a big term at you. Okay, so we're going to come back to this over and over. PNEI, psychoneuroendocrine immunology. PNEI, that's it, a big acronym, big term. It's a hyphenated term that stands for the psychology that interacts with the neurology, that's your nervous system and brain that interacts with your endocrine system, which is your hormones, which all ties into your immune system, right? Okay, so serotonin, a good friend serotonin. 
Once, here's what happens. Let's actually maybe talk about the biophysiology just to refresh everyone's memory as it relates to perimenopause and menopause. Because actually, there's three, there's actually five stages if you want to get technical, but let's keep it to three. Okay. Perimenopause. This happens roughly around 45 years old and actually even as early as 37 for some women. Let's not get too technical about ages, but it happens uh, as a rite of passage as your hormones tend to you know, wean down in preparation for ultimately your ovaries shutting down altogether. That happens for some as early as 48, 50, sometimes, uh, you know, uh, in the early 50s. That's menopause. That's no cycle for 12 months. And then, of course, postmenopause. So after 12 months with no period, amenorrhea, you're, you're, you're not having a menstrual cycle. So in the medical books, you are in uh, postmenopause. Okay, so what's happening? Your ovaries uh, aren't producing the amount of estrogen and progesterone they once did. Your brain is not signaling downstream uh, through what's called follicular signaling hormone, or FSH. It's not telling the ovaries make estrogen. Uh, so if, if, if follicular stimulation hormone is not work, is not is, is tapering down, your ovaries are on their way down to producing the amount of, uh, of estrogen. That down regulation actually affects the brain in a way where metabolism down regulates. That means you're literally centers in your brain that are influenced by estrogen and insulin pr production are no longer as astute. And by the way, you know, here, so in a nutshell, I want folks to think of it like this. Estrogen, you know, petering down through peri and menopause doesn't happen in this sort of nice downward trend. It goes like this, <laughs> right? So up and down, up and down, up and down, as opposed to when we're in our adolescence and there's this serious hockey curve uptick of testosterone if you're a guy or estrogen if you're a girl. It's just consistently up and up and up and up. And why that's relevant is because this up and down, but nonetheless downward trend of estrogen production signaling from the brain to the ovaries produce less, but then next month you have your period and then for two months you don't, and then all of a sudden you do again. It's very confusing uh, to your system at large, but not again, not just the periphery, in the brain, because estrogen receptors exist throughout your entire body. Have receptors that estrogen can dock into. And in the brain, when they're not docking in the numbers that they once did, I, I'm, again, I'm going to reiterate, metabolism gets thrown off. One reason why there's weight gain. Um, vasodilation, that is the ability of the brain to control the peripheral system as it relates to temperature is thrown off. This is the hot flush or the hot flash. These thermal uh, centers in the brain that regulate temperature, like a thermostat you know, on your wall for the, the heat or coolness in your home gets thrown off. Insulin dysregulation starts in the brain. Serotonin, as I mentioned, are, it, it, the output, the manufacturing of serotonin, the feel-good hormone, that's also relevant to sleep-wake cycles, decreases. This is also related to, of course, mood. So when you think about every symptom that you experience in menopause, mood dysregulation, lack or you know, imbalances in, in sleep, um, hot flashes, uh, metabolism issues. I mean, those are just some of them, but the big ones women uh, experience, it all literally and figuratively starts in the head, in the brain. Wow, that's pretty incredible. And you know, one of the things I noticed because I'm, I'm in menopause is that the, and the one thing I've been really trying to work hard on is my memory and cognition because I'm very aware of it. I'm very good friends with you. So I've learned a lot. And I think that it's super important that we understand what are some things that we can do to help keep our brain functioning properly. I know that you are the king when it comes to supplements and ingredients and understanding 
what works, what doesn't, what's the science behind certain ones that actually do play a big role. So I'd love you to provide some tips on some of the things that we can do, practical solutions that we can be doing right now for those of us that are in perimenopause and in menopause. So I think I'd begin by saying uh, any and everything you can do to balance hormones in the periphery will also support the brain. We can talk about those ranging from bioidentical hormone replacement therapy all the way through to some botanicals, herbs, and nutraceutics, which are vitamin minerals that can support this whole symptom. Bear in mind, not everyone's going to have symptoms. So much of this has to do with genetics. Love to come back to that very, very briefly so that we can help people understand there's a, there's a strong degree of personalization that goes along with what do we do because there is no one size fits all. As it pertains to general brain health, and again, adopting this concept, this novel idea of brain spanning, what does that mean? Again, it's not just living longer and well, lifespan or health span. This is the idea of, of maintaining full and optimal cognitive faculty all the way through to the end of life. And if you're female, part of that means balancing estrogen better. Okay, so how do we personalize folks? Well, first we have to understand, again, this is information we can gather through their DNA, simple spit test. And in my clinical practice, I send this off to McGill University and we wash through these, uh, this, these very informing genetics. So basically, I'm gonna boil it down to three classes of females as it pertains to what do we do or should we do, and then we can generalize. There's the female who has an optimal estrogen testosterone balanced system. That is one that produces, there's three steps, essentially how you produce estrogen, how you then metabolize that estrogen, and then how you get rid or flush that estrogen out. All of those three steps happen in every female. To what degree or the speed at which they happen is entirely relevant to the personalization routine. So you can be a high generator of estrogen, but not so good at metabolizing it and not so good at throwing it out or you can produce estrogen at a, at a decent clip. You can also metabolize it well, but then again, not throw it out efficiently. Or you can produce it in a huge abundant amount, not metabolize it, and not manage by detoxifying it or throwing it out very well. That latter person is gonna have a horrible time uh, with menopause because ultimately they're used to producing a lot and then ultimately not knowing what to do with the end result metabolism. So as soon as their ovaries start shutting down, their system goes entirely out of whack. The, under, the uh, unfortunate reality about that latter uh, case individual is they are also not a good candidate for hormone replacement therapy. Because if we were to give them hormones, once again, their body doesn't do a good job genetically for detoxifying. So let's just assume the worst. That's how I like to general, let's assume everyone out there would not do well from bioidentical hormone therapy if you want to get screened, and you should, because frankly, back to the brain, to know that you process hormones, including, of course, estrogen well, and to know that you metabolize them and detoxify them well, you are possibly a very good candidate for hormone re replacement therapy, thereby taking bioidentical hormones might actually help manage your brain and nervous system much better through these perimenopause and menopausal times. So get that looked at. I mean, that's the best, the best case scenario. But let's assume everyone's a, a poor detoxifier of estrogen. Okay, so that's the first thing. The second thing is let's also consider for those ingredients which boost brain-derived neurotrophic factor. Another big term, let's use the acronym BDNF. BDNF is all about increasing the neurogenesis or the ability of the brain to create new nerve cell connections and neuroplasticity, right? The disconnecting and reconnecting. And so much of this is crossover. So again, how do we support hormones and how do we support a brain to thrive throughout perimenopause and menopause? And so that leads me to a whole 
whack uh, of, of ingredients to discuss. So, um, CIRMs. Uh, I think we've even had off camera, we've had discussions around CIRMs, selective estrogen uh, receptor modulators. Again, I know I throw, keep throwing out these big terms, but they're important to learn. CIRMs are a class of herbs, in this case, that can dock. Remember I talked to you a bit about that receptor. So estrogens, receptors on cells are intended to engage with all sorts of things. But if estrogen engages, basically tells the cell to divide and to do stuff, right? You can have selective estrogen regulating uh, modulator, these CIRMs, that only dock on estrogen receptors that will not predispose you to things like breast cancer, colon cancer, uh, hormonally estrogen re uh, positive related hormones. I'll tell you a quick story. You know, this is a funny story. Uh, and I, and I just, I was reminded by it by talking about symptoms. Dr. Patrovskaya was our pharmacology professor in postgrad. And uh, she wanted us guys in particular to understand what it felt like to be in menopause. So without knowing, we trusted her, without knowing just prior to going uh, for lunch, uh, midday one day uh, in, uh, in my postgrad program, she lined everyone at the door and she gave us, I'll explain what it was in, in a minute, she gave us a capsule okay. of, of an ingredient to take. And she said, just before having lunch, take this, this capsule. So we said, okay, fine, we put it in our pockets and off we went. I was riding a motorcycle at the time and I met my friends up who took a, you know, a couple of different cars. We got to our favorite local restaurant. We all popped this magic pill. We had no idea what the intention was yet. <laughs> and um, after about a 20, 30 minute lunch, I hopped back on my motorcycle. You know, it was only a five minute drive, but I'll tell you, halfway back, it was, we, had, we were at the U of T University of Toronto campus. Halfway back, I had to pull over, yank my helmet off, <laughs> pull my leather jacket off, and, and just, I was so discombobulated. I had no idea it was how I looked in my rear view mirror, and I was red, just beat red, and I was sweating. And then finally it passed. And uh, put my helmet back on, went to school, and I got to the parking lot, and I saw everyone experiencing, well, most of them experiencing the same situation, just beat red, just doing one of these sort of fanning themselves. But, and so we got into class. She was laughing her head off. All the students were exchanging these stories, and she said, in particular to you guys, because we'll start clinic, obviously, the women uh, would start their clinical uh, uh, careers long before they would experience menopause. Yeah. Basically, the message was, that's what it feels like to have a hot flash. You, you better take it seriously. What it was, was B3, niacin, which oh, often causes oh. a B3. Not, yeah, so it was a high enough dose that it caused a niacin wow. flush, but it was intense. It was, so it always sticks in my head. So although, and this is where I was, I, I will never fully understand what it feels like to be menopausal. There was that one day in my life that I had the most intense hot flash, and I can't imagine living with that. On the on the oh. women go through this for seven to eleven years. Um, oh, it's awful! I when I turned forty-seven, two months after my forty-seventh birthday, I started experiencing hot flashes, and I was like, "Wait, is this perimenopause?" I wasn't sure, and then it went away, and then it came back like six months later, and I was like, "What is going on?" And can I tell you, it got to a point where it was so bad, I literally would be in tears saying, "I can't." It's very hard to want to live with that every 30 seconds, every minute, every couple, like it is so difficult. So I'm happy, I'm not happy, but I'm happy to hear that you understand because being a woman, oftentimes, and this is what Morpheus, one of the things we really wanna focus on is including the men in what we're talking about because men don't often understand what we're going 